Chapter 3 Christ Will Reign by J. C. Ryle. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, and gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back, or occupy until I come. Luke 19, 11-13. Listener, the words you have heard form an introduction to the parable, which is commonly called the parable of the minas. They contain matter that deserves the prayerful consideration of every true Christian. There are some parables of which Matthew Henry says, with equal quaintness and truth, the key hangs beside the door. The Holy Spirit Himself interprets them. There is no room left for doubt as to the purpose for which they were told. Of such parables, the parable of the miners is an example. Luke tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ went on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. These words reveal to us the secret thoughts of our Lord's disciples at this period of His ministry. They were getting close to Jerusalem. They gathered from many of their master's sayings that something remarkable was about to happen. They had a strong impression that one great end of His coming into the world was about to be accomplished. So far, they were quite right. As to the precise nature of the event about to happen, they were quite wrong. Listener, three subjects are opened up in this passage of Scripture that appear to me to be of the deepest importance. I wish to offer a few thoughts about each of these for your private meditation. I purposely abstain from touching any part of the parable except the beginning. I want to direct your attention to the three following points. 1. I will speak about the mistake of the disciples referred to in these verses. Two. I will speak of the present position of the Lord Jesus Christ. And three, I will speak of the present duty of all who profess to be Jesus Christ's disciples. May God bless the reading to everyone into whose hands this may fall. May every reader or listener be taught to pray that the Spirit will guide him into all truth. 1. The mistake into which the disciples had fallen. What was this mistake? Let us try to understand this point clearly. Our Lord's disciples seem to have thought that the Old Testament promises of Messiah's visible kingdom and glory were about to be fulfilled immediately. They believed rightly that He was indeed the Messiah, the Christ of God, but they blindly supposed that He was going to immediately exercise His great power and reign gloriously over the earth. This was the sum and substance of their error. They appear to have concluded that now was the day and now was the hour when the Redeemer would build up Zion and appear in His glory, when He would strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips slay the wicked, when He would assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah, when He would take the heathen for His inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, when he would break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
when He would reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before His ancients gloriously. And when the kingdom, dominion, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven would be given to the saints of the Most High. Such appears to have been the mistake into which our Lord's disciples had fallen at the time when he spoke the parable of the minas. It was unquestionably a great mistake. They did not realize that before all these prophecies could be fulfilled, the Christ would suffer. Luke 24 46. Their confident expectations overleapt the crucifixion and the long parenthesis of time to follow and bounded onward to the final glory. They did not see that there was to be a first coming of Messiah to be cut off, Daniel 9.26, before the second coming of Messiah to reign. They did not understand that the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law of Moses were to first receive their fulfillment in a better sacrifice, a better high priest, and a shedding of blood more precious than that of bulls and goats. They did not comprehend that before this glory happens, Christ must be crucified and an elect people gathered out from among the Gentiles by the preaching of the gospel. All these were dark things to them. They grasped part of the prophetical word, but not all of it. They saw that Christ was to have a kingdom, but they didn't see that he was to be wounded, bruised, and be an offering for sin. They understood the dispensation of the crown and the glory, but not the dispensation of the cross and the shame. That was their mistake. I believe we have fallen into an error parallel with that of our Jewish brothers, an error less fatal in its consequences than theirs, but an error far more inexcusable because we have had more light. If the Jew thought too exclusively of Christ reigning, has not the Gentile thought too exclusively of Christ suffering? If the Jew could see nothing in Old Testament prophecy but Christ's exaltation and final power, has not the Gentile often seen nothing but Christ's humiliation and the preaching of the gospel? If the Jew dwelt too much on Christ's second coming, Hasn't the Gentile dwelt too exclusively on the first? If the Jew ignored the cross, has not the Gentile ignored the crown? I believe there can be but one answer to these questions. I believe that we Gentiles have been very guilty concerning a large portion of God's truth. I believe that we have cherished an arbitrary, reckless habit of interpreting first coming texts literally and second coming texts spiritually. I believe we have not rightly understood all that the prophets have spoken, Luke 24, 25, about the second personal coming of Christ any more than the Jews did about the first coming. Listener, I earnestly invite your special attention to the point on which I am now dwelling. I don't know what your opinions may be about the fulfillment of the prophetical parts of Scripture, but I ask you in all sincerity to examine your views. I earnestly ask you to consider calmly whether your opinions about Christ's second coming and kingdom are as sound and scriptural as those of His first disciples. 
I earnestly ask you to take notice, lest you insensibly commit as great an error about Christ's second coming and glory as they did about Christ's first coming and the cross. Throw aside all prejudice and view the subject with calm and impartial thought. Study the prophetical scriptures again and pray that you will not err in interpreting their meaning. Read them in the light of those two great pole stars, the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Combine with the first coming the rejection of the Jews, the calling of the Gentiles, the preaching of the gospel as a witness to the world, and the gathering out of the election of grace. Combine with the second coming the restoration of the Jews, the pouring out of judgments on unbelieving Gentiles, the conversion of the world, and the establishment of Christ's kingdom upon earth. Do this, and you will see a meaning and fullness in prophecy that you perhaps have never before discovered. It's time for Christians to interpret unfulfilled prophecy by the light of prophecies already fulfilled. The curses on the Jews were brought to pass literally. The blessings will be, too. The scattering was literal. The gathering will be, too. The pulling down of Zion was literal. The building up will be, too. The rejection of Israel was literal. The restoration will be, too. It is high time to interpret the events that will accompany Christ's second coming by the light of those accompanying His first coming. The first coming was literal, visible, personal. His second coming will be, too. His first coming was with a literal body. His second coming will be, too. At His first coming, the least predictions were fulfilled to the very letter. They will be fulfilled to the very letter at His second coming, too. The shame was literal and visible. The glory will be literal and visible, too. It is high time to stop explaining Old Testament prophecies in a way that is not warranted by the New Testament. What right do we have to say that the words Judah, Zion, Israel, and Jerusalem ever mean anything but literal Judah, literal Zion, literal Israel, and literal Jerusalem? What precedent do we find in the New Testament? Hardly any, if indeed any at all. An admirable writer said it well on this subject. There are really only two or three places in the whole New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, and Revelation, where such names are used decidedly in what may be called a spiritual or figurative state. The word Jerusalem occurs eighty times, and all of them unquestionably literal, except when the opposite is expressly pointed out by the epithets heavenly, new, or holy. Jew occurs a hundred times, and only four are even ambiguous. Israel and Israelite occur forty times, and all are literal. Judah and Judea over twenty times, and all are literal. 2. What is the present position of our Lord Jesus Christ? The parable appears to me to answer that question distinctly in verse 12. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. 
This nobleman represents the Lord Jesus Christ in two respects. Like the nobleman, the Lord Jesus has gone into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. He has not received it yet in possession, though he has it in promise. He has a spiritual kingdom, unquestionably. He is king over the hearts of his believing people, and they are all his faithful subjects. He has a controlling power over the world. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In Him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 And nothing can happen without His permission. But His real, literal, visible, complete kingdom the Lord Jesus has not yet received. Scripture We do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Hebrews 2.8 Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, 1. The devil is the prince of this world during the present dispensation. The vast majority of the inhabitants of the earth choose the things that please the devil far more than the things that please God. Little as they may think it, they are doing the devil's will, behaving as the devil's subjects and serving the devil far more than Christ. This is the actual condition of Christendom as well as of heathen countries. After nineteen hundred years of Bibles and gospel preaching, there is not a nation, country, parish, or a long-established congregation where the devil does not have more subjects than Christ. So fearfully true is it that the world is not yet the kingdom of Christ. The Lord Jesus, during the present dispensation, is like David between the time of his anointing and Saul's death. He has the promise of the kingdom, but he has not yet received the crown and throne. He is followed by a few, and those often are neither great nor wise, but they are a faithful people. He is persecuted by his enemies and often driven into the wilderness, and yet his party is never quite destroyed. But he has none of the visible signs of the kingdom at present, no earthly glory, majesty, greatness, or obedience. The vast majority of mankind do not see any beauty in him. They will not allow this man to reign over them. His people are not honored for their master's sake. They walk the earth like princes in disguise. His kingdom has not come yet. His will is not done on earth yet except by a little flock. It is not the day of His power. The Lord Jesus is biding His time. But just as the Lord Jesus, like the nobleman, went to receive a kingdom, so, like the nobleman, the Lord Jesus intends one day to then return. The words of the angels will have complete fulfillment. Scripture This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Acts 1, 11. As his going away was a real, literal going away, so his return will be a real, literal return. As he came personally the first time with a body, so he will come personally the second time with a body. As he came visibly to this earth and visibly went away, so when he comes the second time, he will visibly return. And then, and not until then, the complete kingdom of Christ will begin. 
He left his servants as a nobleman. He returns to his servants as a king. Then he intends to cast out that old usurper, the devil, to bind him for a thousand years and to strip him of his power. Then he intends to make a restitution of the face of creation. It will be the world's jubilee day. Our earth will at last bring forth her increase. The king will at length have his own again. At last, Psalm 97 1 will be fulfilled, and men will say, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Then he intends to fulfill the prophecies of Enoch, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul to execute judgment upon all the ungodly inhabitants of Christendom. Jude, verse 15, to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Luke 3:17 and to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1:8 Then he intends to raise his dead saints and gather his living ones, to gather together the scattered tribes of Israel, and to set up an empire on earth in which every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2:11. When, how, where, and in what manner all these things will be, we cannot say particularly. It is enough for us to know that they will be. The Lord Jesus has undertaken to do them, and they will be performed. The Lord Jesus waits for the time appointed by the Father, and then they will all come to pass. As surely as He was born of a pure virgin and lived on earth thirty-three years as a servant, so surely He will come with clouds in glory and reign on the earth as King. Listener, I charge you to establish in your mind among the great truths of your religion that Christ is one day to have a complete kingdom in this world, that His kingdom is not yet set up, but that it will be set up in the day of His return. Know clearly whose kingdom it is now, not Christ's, but the usurper Satan's. Know clearly whose kingdom it is to be one day, not Satan the usurper's, but Jesus Christ's. Know clearly when the kingdom is to change hands and the usurper to be cast out. When the Lord Jesus returns in person, and not before. Know clearly what the Lord Jesus is doing now. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding as the High Priest in the Holy of Holies for His people, adding to their number such as shall be saved by the preaching of the gospel, and waiting until the appointed day of His power, when He will come to bless His people and sit as a priest on His throne. Zechariah 6.13 Know these things clearly, and you will do well. Know these things clearly, and then you will not cherish extravagant expectations from any church, minister, or religious machinery in this present dispensation. You will not marvel to see ministers and missionaries not converting everyone to whom they preach. You will not wonder to find that while some believe the gospel, many will not believe. You will not be depressed and cast down when you see the children of the world in many places and the children of God in few places. You will remember that the days are evil. 
Ephesians 5.16, and that the time of general conversion has not yet arrived. You will thank God that any are converted at all, and that while the gospel is hidden from the wise and prudent, it is yet revealed to babes. It is regrettable for the man who expects a millennium before the Lord Jesus returns. How can this possibly be? If the world in the day of his coming is to be found as it was in the days of Noah and Lot. Know these things clearly, and then you will not be confounded and surprised by the continuance of immense evils in the world. Wars, tumults, oppression, dishonesty, selfishness, covetousness, superstition, bad government, and abounding heresies will not appear to you unaccountable. You will not sink down into a morbid, pessimistic condition of mind when you see laws, reforms, and education not making mankind perfect. You will not relapse into a state of apathy and disgust when you see churches full of imperfections and theologians making mistakes. You will say to yourself, The time of Christ's power has not yet arrived. The devil is still working among his children and sowing darkness and division." broadcast among the saints that the true King is yet to come. Know these things clearly, and then you will see why God delays the final glory and allows things to go on as they do in this world. It's not that He is not able to prevent evil. It's not that He is slack in the fulfilling of His promises, but the Lord is taking out for Himself a people by the preaching of the gospel. He is long-suffering to the unconverted. The Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 9. Once the number of the elect are gathered out of the world, once the last elect sinner is brought to repentance, then the kingdom of Christ will be set up, and the throne of grace will be exchanged for the throne of glory. Know these things clearly, and then you will work diligently to do good to souls. The time is short. Scripture, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Romans 13, 12. The signs of the times call loudly for watchfulness and speak with no uncertain voice. The Turkish Empire is drying up. The Jews are cared for as they never have been for hundreds of years. The gospel is being preached as a witness in almost every corner of the world. Surely, if we would pluck a few more brands from the burning before it's too late, we must work hard and lose no time. We must preach, we must warn, we must exhort, we must give money to religious societies, we must spend and be spent far more than we have ever done yet. Know these things clearly, and then you will be constantly looking for the coming of the day of God. You will regard the second coming as a glorious and comfortable truth, around which all of your best hopes will be clustered. You won't merely think of Christ crucified, but will think also of Christ's coming again. You will long for the days of refreshing and the manifestation of the sons of God. You will find peace in looking back to the cross, and you will find joyful hope in looking forward to the kingdom. Once more, I repeat, know clearly Christ's present position. He is like one who has gone to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. 3. 
What is the present duty of all Christ's professing disciples? When I speak of present duty, I mean, of course, their duty between the period of Christ's first and second comings. And I find an answer in the words of a nobleman, in the parable, to his servants. He gave them ten miners and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. Listener, I know few words that are more searching and impressive than these. Do business with this until I come back. They are spoken to all who profess and call themselves Christians. They address the conscience of everyone who has not formally turned his back on Christianity. They ought to stir up all hearers of the gospel to examine themselves as to whether they are in the faith and to prove themselves. For your sake, remember, these words were written, Do business with this until I come back. The Lord Jesus bids you to do business. By that he means that you are to be a doer in your Christianity, and not merely a hearer and professor. He wants his servants not only to receive his wages, eat his bread, dwell in his house, and belong to his family, but also to do his work. You are to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Matthew 5.16. Do you have faith? It must not be a dead faith. It must work by love. Are you elect? You are elect unto obedience. Are you redeemed? You are redeemed so that you may be a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14. Do you love Christ? Prove the reality of your love by keeping Christ's commandments. O listener, do not forget this charge to do business. Beware of an idle, talking, gossiping, sentimental, do-nothing religion. Don't think because your doings cannot justify you or put away one single sin that therefore it doesn't matter whether you do anything at all. Away with such a delusion. Cast it behind you as an invention of a devil. Think of the house built upon the sand and its miserable end. As ever you would make certain about his calling and choosing you, 2 Peter 1.10, be a doing Christian. But the Lord Jesus also bids you to do business with this, that is, your minor. By this he means that he has given each one of his people some opportunity of glorifying him. He would have you understand that everyone has got his own sphere, the poorest as well as the richest, that everyone has an open door before him, and may, if he will, show forth his master's praise. Your bodily health and strength, your mental gifts and capacities, your money and your earthly possessions, your rank and position in life, your example and influence with others, your liberty to read the Bible and hear the gospel, your plentiful supply of means of grace, all of these are your minors. All of these are to be used and employed with a continual reference to the glory of Christ. All of these are His gifts. But the Lord Jesus bids you also to do business until He comes back. 
By that he means that you are to do his work on earth like one who continually looks for his return. You are to be like the faithful servant who doesn't know when his master may come home, but keeps everything ready and is always prepared. You are to be like one who knows that Christ's coming is the great reckoning day, and to be ready to render up your account at any moment. You are not to suppose that you have any freehold in this world, not even a lease. The greatest and the richest person is only God's tenant at will. You are not to neglect any social duty or relation of life because of the uncertainty of the Lord's return. You are to fulfill the work to which God has called you in a godly and Christian way, and you are to be ready to go from the place of business to meet Christ in the air, if the Lord thinks best. You are to be like a man who never knows what a day might bring forth, and therefore you are not to put off anything until a convenient season. You are to rise and go forth in the morning, ready, if need be, to meet Christ at noon. You are to lie down in bed at night, ready, if need be, to be awakened by the midnight cry, Behold the Bridegroom! Matthew 25, 6. You are to keep your spiritual accounts in a state of constant preparation, like one who never knows how soon they may be called for. You are to measure all your ways by the measure of Christ's appearing, and to do nothing in which you would not like Jesus to find you doing. This is to do your business until Jesus comes. Think, listener, how condemning these words are to thousands of professing Christians. What an utter absence of preparation appears in their daily walk and conversation! How thoroughly unfit they are to meet Christ! They know nothing of using the gifts of God as loans for which they must give account. They don't show the slightest desire to glorify Him in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20, King James Version. They give no sign of readiness for the second coming. Old Gurnall says it well, It may be written on the grave of every unconverted man, Here lies one who never did for God an hour's work. Think again how arousing these words should be to everyone who is rich in this world but does not know how to spend their money rightly. Alas, there are many who live on as if Christ had never said anything about the difficulty of rich men being saved. They are rich toward their own pleasures, their own tastes, or their own families, but not rich toward God. They live as if they would not have to give an account of their use of money. They live as if there were no reckoning day before the judgment seat of Christ. They live as if Christ had never said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20.35 Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Luke 12.33 If this book should by chance fall into the hands of such a person, I implore you, consider your ways and be wise. Cease to be content with giving God's cause a little. Give far more liberally than you have ever done. Give hundreds where you now give tens. Give thousands where you now give hundreds. Then, and not until then, 
Well, I believe that you are doing business as one who looks for Christ's return. Alas for the covetousness and narrow-mindedness of the church of these days. May the Lord open the eyes of rich Christians. Think again how instructive these words are to all who are troubled by doubts about mingling with the world and about taking part in its vain amusements. It's useless to tell us that races, balls, theatres, operas, and cards are not forbidden by name in Scripture. The question we should ask ourselves is simply this, am I doing business as one who looks for Christ's return when I take part in these things? Should I desire Jesus to return suddenly and find me at the racecourse, in the ballroom, at the theatre, or at the card table? Should I think I was in my right place and was where my Lord would have me to be? Oh, dear listener, this is the true test by which to try all our daily occupations and employments of time. That thing that we would not do if we thought Jesus was coming tonight is that thing we should not do at all. That place to which we would not go if we thought Jesus was coming this day is that place we should avoid. That company in which we would not like Jesus to find us is that company in which we should never sit. Oh, that men would live as in the sight of Christ, not as in the sight of man, of the church, or of ministers, but as in the sight of Christ. This would be doing business until He comes. But think how encouraging these words are to everyone who seeks first the kingdom of God and loves the Lord Christ in sincerity. What if the children of the world regard them as too righteous? What if mistaken friends and relatives tell them they pay too much attention to religion and go too far? Those words, do business with this until I come back, are words that justify their conduct. Let me conclude this address by a few words of general application. 1. Warning First, let me draw from the whole subject a word of solemn warning for everyone into whose hands this may fall. That warning is that there is a great change yet to come in this world, which we should constantly keep before our mind's eye. That change is a change of masters. That old rebel, the devil, and all his adherents will be cast down. The Lord Jesus and all his saints will be exalted and raised to honor. Scripture, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 11:15. That change is a change of manners. Sin will no longer be made light of and alleviated. Wickedness will no longer go unpunished and unreproved. Holiness will become the general character of the inhabitants of the earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be the dwelling place of righteousness. That change is a change of opinion. There will be no more deism, skepticism, or infidelity. All nations will do honor to the crucified Lamb of God. All men will know Him from the least to the greatest. Scripture, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. I say nothing as to the time when these things will take place. I object on principle to all dogmatism about dates. 
All I insist upon is this. There is a great change before us all, a change for the earth, a change for man, and above all, a change for the saints. I accept the prediction that there is a great improvement and development of human nature yet to take place. I accept it with all my heart. But how and when will it be brought about? Not by any system of education, not by any legislation of politicians, not by anything short of the appearing of the kingdom of Christ. Then and then only will there be universal justice, universal knowledge, and universal peace. I accept the common phrase of many, there is a good time coming. I accept it with all my heart. I positively believe there will one day be no more poverty, no more oppression, no more ignorance, no more grinding competition, and no more covetousness. But when will that good time come? Never. Never until the return of Jesus Christ at His second coming. And for whom will that time be good? For no one but those who know and love the Lord. I accept the common phrase, There is a man coming who will set all right that is now wrong. We wait for the coming man. I accept it with all my heart. I do look for one who will unravel the tangled skein of this world's affairs and put everything in its right place. But who is the great physician for an old, diseased, worn-out world? It is the man Christ Jesus who is yet to return. O listener, let us realize this point. There is before us all a great change. Surely, when a man has given notice to leave his present home, he should make sure that he already has another home. 2. Question. Next, let me draw from the whole subject a solemn question for everyone into whose hands this may fall. That question is simply this Are you ready for the great change? Are you ready for the coming and kingdom of Christ? Remember, I don't ask what you think about controversial points on the subject of prophecy, about all these points you and I may err and yet be saved. The one point to which I want to hold you is this Are you ready for the kingdom of Christ? It is useless to tell me that in asking this I put before you too high a standard. It is vain to tell me that a man may be a very good man and yet not be ready for the kingdom of Christ. I deny it altogether. Every justified and converted man is ready, and if you are not ready, you are not a justified man. The standard I put before you is nothing more than the New Testament standard, and the apostles would have doubted the truth of your religion if you were not looking and longing for the coming of the Lord. Above all, the grand end of the gospel is to prepare men to meet God. What has your Christianity done for you? If it has not made you ready for the kingdom of Christ, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Oh, that you would think on this matter and never rest till you are ready to meet Christ. 3. Invitation. Next, let me offer an invitation to all listeners who do not feel ready for Christ's return. That invitation will be short and simple. I implore you to know your danger. And come to Christ without delay, that you may be pardoned, justified, and made ready for things to come. I beg you to flee from the wrath to come, today, 
Matthew 3, 7, Luke 3, 7, to the hope set before you in the gospel. I pray that you will, in Christ's stead, lay down enmity and unbelief, and at once be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Lay aside everything that stands between you and Christ. Cast away everything that draws you back and prevents your feeling ready for the Lord's appearing. Find out the plaguing sin that weighs you down and tear it from your heart, however dear it may be. Cry mightily to the Lord Jesus to reveal Himself to your soul. Do not rest until you have gotten a real, firm, and reasonable hope, and know that your feet are on the rock of ages. And 4. Exhortation. Last of all, let me draw from the subject an exhortation to everyone who knows Christ indeed and loves His appearing. That exhortation is simply this strive more and more to be a doing Christian. Labor more and more to show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Improve every talent that the Lord Jesus has committed to your charge to the setting forth of His glory. Let your walk declare plainly that you seek a country yet to come. Let your conformity to the mind of Christ be unquestionable and unmistakable. Let your holiness be a clear, plain fact, which even the worst enemies of the gospel cannot deny. Above all, if you are a student of prophecy, I implore you never to let it be said that prophetical study prevents practical diligence. If you do believe that the day is really approaching, then labor actively to stimulate others unto love and good works. If you do believe that the night is almost gone, then be doubly diligent to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Never was there a greater mistake than to imagine that the doctrine of the personal return of Christ is calculated to paralyze Christian diligence. Surely there can be no greater spur to the servant's activity than the expectation of his master's speedy return. This is the way to obtain a healthy state of soul. There is nothing like the exercises of our graces for promoting our spiritual vigor. Sadly, there are many of God's saints who complain that they want spiritual comfort in their religion while the fault is altogether in themselves. Do business. Do business, I would say to such persons. Lay yourselves out more heartily for the glory of God, and these uncomfortable feelings will soon vanish away. This is the way to do good to the children of the world. Nothing under God has such an effect on unconverted people as the sight of a real, thoroughgoing, live Christian. There are thousands who will not come to hear the gospel and don't know the meaning of justification by faith, who yet can understand an uncompromising, holy, consistent walk with God. Do business. Do business, I say again, if you want to do good. In living this way, we will find great joy in our work, great comfort in our trials, great doors of usefulness in the world, great consolation in our sickness, and great hope in our death. 
We will leave great evidences behind us when we are buried, have great confidence in Christ's return, and receive a great crown in the day of reward.